Our so reading to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And now, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning is again from 1 John as we uh, are studying this beautiful little letter together, although as we noted last week, uh, it's like the letter to the Hebrews. Neither one of these two called epistles or letters uh, has the ordinary uh, greeting that you would expect and that the other letters have or the personal notes or the, the uh, ending uh, farewells. And yet these clearly were both written to the church as uh, almost essays on the truth of Christ, the gospel, the essential. And as we've seen the past couple of weeks, uh, John tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, that his reason for writing this particular work is so that those who have believed in Jesus' name might know that we have eternal life. So this is the one place if you or someone you know and love is struggling with assurance of salvation, that's what this little book was written to give. And so we then turned back last week and began to study the opening verses and saw John speak, as he does in the prologue to his gospel, of one who has come to us from God himself and who is God himself. He comes from eternity, and yet he has taken human flesh. And he says, I am one of the witnesses to this. I heard, and then I saw, and then I looked upon or gazed upon, I I." I began to study this one who had come to us, and in fact, I became so close a disciple of his that I can say that I've even touched and handled that which is this word of life that I've come to proclaim to you. This morning, we asked the question, okay, what are you proclaiming? He's told us whom he is proclaiming, but now we ask, so what's the proclamation? What is the message? that you are bringing to us, John, and we begin to study this this morning. So look with me, beginning with verse 5, and we're going to read down through verse 3 of chapter 2, but hopefully next week we'll go back and pick up in greater detail the opening verses of chapter 2. Again, why would I go into chapter 2? Uh, as I said before, remember that these chapter divisions and verses are not part of the Bible. They were added in the Middle Ages to all ancient manuscripts just to help people find things more easily. And uh, sometimes 
they can be more confusing than helpful uh, if they divide a thought, as I think they do here. So now for the word. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just two points this morning. But don't get your hopes up. The second may be a little long. Two points. John Calvin was uh, arguably, well, I don't think arguably, not the greatest genius of the Reformation, that would be Luther, but the greatest theologian of the Reformation. And in his greatest work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he begins by saying, nearly all true wisdom, that is wisdom which is sound and good, consists of these two things knowledge of oneself and knowledge of God. And that's what John is talking about here. The Greek ideal, know thyself, is insufficient because you and I are broken people and in order truly to know ourselves, we need to know something of the one who made us in his image and likeness for himself. And so John aims in these opening verses to begin telling us who God is and who we are. So first, just in verse 5, what does he tell us about God? He says, this is what we're proclaiming to you. And we expect this deep and profound theological statement. We expect him to launch into the kind of thing from the confession of faith that I mentioned last week. What is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. But he doesn't. He says, here's the proclamation. This is what I've come to tell you. God is light. Full stop. Now, all I can tell you is that uh, if I had given that as my answer uh, to the question, tell who God is, uh, when I was standing my theological exams, I would not be standing here before you today. Um, that would have been considered uh, an utterly inadequate answer. And yet, John says, 
Here it is. I knew him. I saw him. I was so close to him that I touched him. And what did he come to reveal to us? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, God is referred to in, as light in a variety of ways throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New. And it's used in three different senses throughout the Bible. One is God as the source of all life. It's in this sense that the Bible begins with the word that God said, let there be light. And what began? Life. Life began. So it's used repeatedly in that way. And in John's prologue to his gospel, he uses it that way when he speaks of Jesus coming and being the light. But that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, there's a, a second way that it's used, and Isaiah used it in our first lesson, and that is God is the source of truth, a light of revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles. So in that sense, God is light, and note it doesn't say God is the light. It says the word is the light of men, but God, when it says God is light with no definite article, it's speaking of him as the source. He's the perfect source from which he doesn't just manifest this category of life or truth. It's saying, no, you want to know what life and truth is. It's coming from him. He's its source. But here, it's clearly using the third sense in which it speaks of his utter purity and holiness, the way in which he is utterly different from those of us in his image who are broken in a variety of ways, or even as we shall one day be in glory, will nevertheless be imperfect in the sense of needing one another. God needs no one. He's perfect in his attributes. You and I are not the body of Christ as individuals. We're members of the body of Christ. We need one another to be the body of Christ. But God in his perfection is the source of all of this. And so here, he's using it, as, as we'll see, very clearly in this sense of complete moral purity that nothing morally and ethically impure can dwell in his presence. And that's how he's going to develop it when he turns now to tell us about ourselves. And this was a very different view, by the way, than most of the ancient peoples have. I mean, if you have read mythology or if you've studied the other ancient religions, uh, the gods were a fairly lusty, violent bunch, and they didn't mind at all uh, immorality and ethical behavior and being tricksters and all the rest. And John is saying, no, the true God is nothing like those God you created in your own image and likeness. The one who made us for himself is light. And so he now turns to tell us who we are. And he does it in a series of three contrasts. In verses 6 and 8 and 10, he shows us what it looks like when people walking according to our own broken nature are still walking in darkness. He begins each of those by saying, if we say, if we say this, 
then it's, it shows that we are not yet people of the light. And then he shows at the end of those statements, he says, anyone who thinks this, anyone who says it, is a liar and the truth's not in him or he's deceived or he is calling God a liar. Those are the three ways that he closes this. Then in contrast, in verses six and nine and chapter two, verse one, he shows what it looks like when one begins to move out of darkness into light and life and peace by the grace of God. So those are the three contrasts that I want us to, to look at this morning. And the first is this. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with God, we know God, but we walk in darkness. He says, we lie, we're deceived, we don't, we don't get it. And yet, I would sadly say that this is perhaps the most prevalent evangelical teaching of our day, and it has even infected reformed circles. So much of the so-called grace movement, good-hearted as it is, wanting people not to get caught in legalistic self-salvation, have fallen into classic antinomianism, which is just a big word that means lawlessness, anti against nomos, the Greek word in the New Testament for law, lawlessness. So he says, you cannot walk in darkness and have fellowship with God. Now, why is that? Well, uh, forgive me, it reminds me of a uh, a joke we used to enjoy when I was a kid growing up. I, I grew up when the whole uh, astronaut thing was taking off and uh, we had the cosmonauts and the astronauts. And, and uh, in, in this story, uh, there's a convention of astronauts and cosmonauts and the whole world's invited. But of course, it's the Russian and the American that are off to the side talking seriously, exchanging great ideas and the others kind of looking benighted and forlorn because they have nothing going. But then a fellow from a developing nation, which will not be named, a European developing nation, walks up and is kind of listening to them and just shaking his head and smirking. And they finally, they, they just get a little upset and they say, what? What, what, what are you guys doing? He goes, you, you Americans and Russians, such small change. You, you want to go to the moon? We're going to the sun. And they said, you idiot, you can't get anywhere near the sun. You'll be absolutely fried to a crisp. And he just... So they finally, he looked so confident, they said, well, what, what's going on? He said, our scientists have been working on this for years, and they have at last come up with a solution. And they said, well, share it, man, what is it? Kind of looked around, he said, we're going at night. <laughs> now... Um, it's, a, it's, a silly, it's a silly story, but it's exactly what John is saying. John is saying, God is light. He's the one who spoke the stars into being. He's the source of all of this grandeur, and you think that you can stand in his presence as a sinner and not be seared and destroyed? And yet, 
it's typical teaching in evangelicalism to say, you know, we're all sinners, we're all in progress. Thank God, that doesn't matter. We're wearing Christ's righteousness, and as a result, you know, we're just going to be a mess. I'm a mess, but put up with me because I'm God's mess, and, you know, one day he'll make me. Well, there is a strong element of truth in there which is that we're not perfect until we're in the presence of the Lord. And the only righteousness in which we can stand before the Lord is that of the Lord Jesus. But the Bible justice certainly teaches us that God has called all of those whom he has saved to begin to live according to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in regeneration and that we are to be on a whole new trajectory marked by obedience. Now, as I said, I think the first time I was with you, we all, all of us parents, and everyone else, knows the difference between an obedient child and a disobedient child. An obedient child is not always obedient, but the obedient child is disappointed in himself or herself when they fall, when they fail. The disobedient child sometimes obeys, but likes it best when he's getting away with stuff. I know because I was that guy for a long time. When God changes our hearts, he gives us his spirit, and he calls us now to begin to walk in the light. Uh, one old friend of mine who, who was a, a dear friend and is still, but came to a bad end in ministry, for years was increasingly preaching this antinomian message. He was being invited to conferences all around the world because people felt so free. It was, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Stop looking at yourself. Just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. So the last time he was willing to talk with me about these things some years ago before he and his own life came to a tragic end, I said to him, brother, why does the Apostle Paul always after declaring his God's incredible grace and mercy toward us have some point in his letter where he says, therefore, this is how you are now to live. And he said, well, just don't get me looking at myself, John. I want to look at Jesus. And I said, where is he? Is he up there on the church steeple? Paul says to the Corinthians, let a man examine himself, or do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? if you do not fail the test. The call to self-examination is not to see if I've become good enough, it's to see whether Christ is really in me and starting to live through me. And so if you are happily embracing the darkness and continuing in paths that you know to be displeasing to the Lord and you are not yet at war with those paths, John says, you don't yet know him. You, you just, you don't know him. You're, you're self-deceived. You are on a destructive path. So what's the solution? Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he says you have to turn around. If God's grace is at work in you, you turn around. You say, I was going this way. I'm going in a different direction now. My life 
is now headed differently, and it's got to affect everything. It's got to affect my marriage, if I'm married. It's got to affect my parenting. If I'm a teenager, it's got to affect the way that I relate to my parents. Now with respect and a desire for obedience, it's got to reflect the way that I handle myself at work with people that I report to and people who report to me. If I'm not showing the grace and mercy and love to other people that Christ has shown me, how can I say that I'm walking in the light? If people don't, when they're in my presence, have a sense of the light shining on them, then what? what's this all about? What, what good is it? What does it mean? And so... I would ask you first, simply this. Are you beginning to walk in the light? Let me put it to you this way. When you are doing your taxes, are you walking in the light? When you're considering what you're going to give to the work of the Lord, are you walking in the light? So this this is the first contrast between those who are just going their own way but claiming fellowship and churches and pulpits are filled with such people and truth be told all of us are that guy sometimes still but the moment we realize it it should break our hearts and say oh lord no i want to walk in the light and the blood of christ he says cleanses us we have that promise he makes us clean again and sets us on the road again. The second contrast is if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now what's he talking about here? Here he is talking about those who claim that people are born innocent. There there are some people who make bad choices and become bad, but that's not most of us. I mean, basically, we're good. We're going our way, and, you know, I'm doing okay. And, and this can come in a couple of different forms. It really is what stands behind most religion. Most religion is human-made on the presumption that we're basically okay, and we can just work hard, try hard, do our, do our thing, and whatever gods there be will be pleased. I remember a conversation years ago when I was still in university. I was at a party and found myself in a fascinating conversation with a very lovely Hindu lady. And I, was, I said, tell me your story. And she told me, you know, about coming from India. And she'd studied at these various schools and taken different degrees. She was very bright, very gifted, very charming. And so after she told me her story, she said, well, tell me about yourself. So... I just started telling her about myself and uh, my years of running from God and brokenness of my life and finally, by God's grace, coming to my senses and realizing that I couldn't fix myself. And I saw her becoming increasingly agitated and she finally said, stop. You may need all of that, but I'm not like you. I don't need your Savior I don't want your Jesus. Well, I wasn't doing evangelism, but what happened? This story was hitting up against her idea that we really are okay, and if there's a God, 
He's going to be happy with us because we're pretty happy with ourselves. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. He's talking here about nature. Now, even Christians who know better can lapse into that. A story from not far from here. It was a Presbyterian church in Baltimore. I don't know how many of you have ever read stuff or even heard. Years ago, uh, they, uh, very fearsome but brilliant uh, Reformed theologian John Gerstner. He was was R.C. Sproul's mentor and uh, spoke into Jim Boyce's life. You could always tell his students because he had a real gravelly voice. And you'd be sitting talking with them, and then when they went up to preach, they'd say, my text for today is... And you'd realize, ah, they're channeling John Gerstner again. But Gerstner was a fearsome intellect, but his favorite sermons were on the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And boy, you know, he could leave you just... uh, And he was preaching at a church in Baltimore one time, and they had an old practice on Baptism Sunday of giving a white rose to the family. And he saw that, and he said, why is that rose white? And they said, well, to depict the the beauty, the innocence of children. And he said, innocence of children? That rose should be black. They're little vipers. (laughs) Well, uh, dear Henry Krabendam, another fine theologian, when he heard it, said, yes, but little vipers in covenant diapers. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God for the covenant diapers. But there is that idea. One other Gerstner story, forgive me, but I just... it may have been that same Sunday. He was standing at the back greeting people as they went out, and, and one of the women said, Dr. Gerstner, while you were preaching, I felt that big. And he said, that's too big, madam. That's too big. <laughs> but what he was trying to do was push back against this notion that somehow we're good enough by nature, and we're just not. You may be a lovely person by nature, and you may be in comparison with most other human beings, really a, a good person, the kind of neighbor that we would want or the kind of you know, child that we would want or spouse. But standing in the presence of the sun, suddenly no darkness can be born. And darkness, of course, is simply the absence of light. When you leave a room... To, to shut things down for the night, you don't turn up the darkness. You just turn off the light. Darkness is an absence, and the broken places in our lives are demonstrations that God hasn't yet gotten a hold of us there, that his light isn't shining in to those places. We're still, we're saying you can have all of that, but could I please just have this for a little bit longer? And of course, in the end, he wants He wants every part of us. And he loves us so that as we, what's the the antidote? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can that be the antidote to someone who says, I have no sin? You just say to them, let's sit down and start going over this past few hours. (laughs) What have you been thinking? What have you been talking about? As we begin, if we're honest in our self-evaluation, suddenly we realize that we're not nearly the people that we thought we were. The third contrast, again, if we say, may sound so close that some people, I think, believe this is parallelism and that John's just repeating what he just said, but 
but actually it, it, uh, there's a difference here. He says, if we say we have not sinned, before he said, if we say we have no sin. That's a nature question. And John Stott develops this very, if you want to pursue this, he develops it beautifully in his little commentary on 1 John. But uh, the contrast is between a nature question, we say we have no sin, because people are really good. White roses. Or here, someone who says, basically, they may be a mess, and of course there's sin in the world, but don't look at me. I didn't do anything. If we say we have not sinned, again, it's a total self-deception. And, I mean, it's easy to hold up public figures, and I won't name anybody. I don't na need to because it's, it's gone on on both the left and the right. Republicans and Democrats in public square are both guilty of it. But over the years, from time to time, we've had leaders who have actually said, I didn't do anything like that. I'd never do anything like that. I don't have anything to repent of. Why should I pray for forgiveness? I don't, I don't need it. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He says, if you think that you haven't sinned, you may say, yes, sin is there, and it's, but I'm not one of those guys. Or there's a more... Uh, Christianized form of it, and it's one that some very great Christian leaders have fallen prey to from time to time, two that come to mind. One is John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley, for a while, uh, got into perfectionism and told his uh, revivalist friends, George Whitfield and his brother Charles and others, that he had now achieved a state by God's grace where there was no sin in his life. God had set him free. And their response to him was, you can only possibly be saying that because you don't know yourself as well as we know you. <laughs> and by God's grace, he came out of it. But all tendencies toward Christian perfectionism that say, I've now reached. The great Andrew Murray, whose writings have helped me so much, was prone to this. And in some of his writings, he, I think, lapsed strongly into it where, yes, I used to be a sinner. I was saved by grace, but now by the power of the Holy Spirit, I walk uh, in total obedience. Well, I mean, the bottom line is even our righteousness is his filthy rags. It's God and his grace doesn't show us the extent of it. If I do something really kind for someone, just from the heart, just you know, by God's grace, I just see somebody in need and I say, ah, you know, I, I've got to do something. I stop and I do it. And I say thank you and I walk away. If I could just forget it, then I'd be fine. But then I start thinking, nah, I'm making progress. I'm doing well. Did anyone see it? Is it appropriate to tell anyone? No, I guess that wouldn't be. Maybe it'll come up. Some, I mean, you know, you begin working Preachers, we are the worst. I, I used to stand in my study before I'd go down and say, Lord, I just confess to you that if, if the place is packed to overflowing and we're setting up folding chairs, I will be more thrilled and excited than if the room is half empty and someone comes to know you this morning. Even in doing the will of God, doing what he's called us to do, 
the more we know ourselves, the more we just have to go, wow, am I ever going to grow up? But the great thing is that as we confess and turn to him, he makes all things new again. I once said to uh, one of my seminary professors, I was talking about this, and I said, it's like an infinite regress. I, I confess it, and then I feel good for having become so spiritual that I acknowledged it and confessed it. And he said, at every turn in that infinite regress, Jesus is standing there with his arms wide open to welcome you. So what do we do with this tomorrow morning? Just practical advice. I would encourage you, if you don't yet have disciplines of the spiritual life, when you first awaken, give yourself to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I need to die today, the fleshly me, <laughs> in order that you might live through me. <laughs> Sorry, reminded me. I, I said that at Cedar Springs once. I said, I'm learning every morning when I wake up and open my eyes to say, John Wood must die. And at staff on Monday morning, one of our, our guys, who was just delightful, said to me, John, you have no idea how helpful that was. Uh, yesterday, he said, I woke up this morning and said, John Wood must die. <laughs> but, but to say, you know, not I, but Christ in me, that is in my flesh, there's no good thing, but God's spirit is in me. And so that's not who I am anymore. And I now want to walk in the power of the spirit as you sit up, just Begin to give yourself to the Lord, your body. If you've got parts of your body that are afflicted and particularly easily tempted, whether it's appetites of, of food or sex or anything else, give yourself intentionally to the Lord in that moment and say, I want you to rule and reign this part of my unruly body that tends to, to give me trouble. Get on your face before you stand up. And just say, I'm yours. This, this all doesn't take a minute. Not like you're going to not be able to go to the gym and work out that body that is going to die. You may have the best abs in the graveyard, but it's going to die eventually. Take care of your soul. Get before the Lord. And then as you stand, if you don't yet read, just take five minutes. Take, start with I don't know, Mark's gospel, he just, it's immediately, immediately, and immediately that he keeps repeating that, euthus, euthus, euthus. So just read one little paragraph and read it and say, Lord, I have no idea what I just read, but I want to get your word in me. Would you begin to open my understanding so that I begin to learn how to read your word? And then at midday, just say, how have I done this morning? Am I walking in the light or darkness? How have I treated people? How have I been informed by my relationship with Christ? As you're driving home, Lord, what was today like? And what am I going to be to my family now? Am I going to be a light? Or is it going to be like a pall has fallen over the household because I'm home now? You know, you just keep walking with that. I want to walk in the light. I walked in darkness this morning. Forgive me. He's faithful and just. Get in that rhythm of walking in the light, and you will have fellowship with him. Brothers and sisters, this meal is not just a representation. Yes, in 1 Corinthians 11, 
Uh, Paul says, do this, he quotes the words of institution, do this in remembrance of me. But before that, in chapter 10, he says, you can't eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord. Don't you know that the bread we break, the cup we drink, is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, that great mystery. So when we come here, we are in some deep and profound sense meeting with the Lord. And so I would invite you, if you've been baptized into Christ, to come this morning, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because he loves you and he gave himself for you. Our Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, let us delight in how much he loves us as you eat and drink, taste and see how much he loves you.